another Saturday webinar made possible this year by the Ashbrook Center, which is an independent center at Ashland University, offering a number of resources to help teachers teach young citizens what it means to be Americans. My name is Chris Burkett. I am Associate Professor of Political Science and History and Co-Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government Program here at Ashland University. Um, the theme of this year's webinar series is President in Their Times, and in case this is your first time joining us, let me just mention that the point of these uh, webinars is to pull together some thoughtful, interesting scholars to have a conversation about 10 presidents. Um, we encourage all of you joining us uh, to participate in that conversation by submitting questions in the chat box, and we'll try to get to as many of those questions as possible. Uh, in the next week or so, you will receive an email with a link that you can follow to request the certificate of participation. As always, uh, in everything that we do here at Ashbrook, we, we start by looking at original documents. We, we build on original documents and try to have a conversation built on those documents. And we're drawing um, uh, for today's conversation on documents that are part of the Ashbrook Center's extensive document database, which is available at teachingamericanhistory.org, uh, or shortened down to, to tah.org uh, for your convenience. Uh, today's president is James K. Polk, Young Hickory and Manifest Destiny, and we've asked people joining us to take a look at five different documents, beginning with George Washington's farewell address, uh, all the way up to uh, Abraham Lincoln's speech on the war with Mexico in 1848. So we'll try to build on those documents uh, in our conversation today and, um, and uh, see how those are relevant. I'm happy to introduce our panelists today. Dan Monroe is Associate Professor and John C. Griswold, Distinguished Professor of History at Millican University. He's the author of several books and articles, including The Republican Vision of John Tyler, which was published in 2003. Uh, Dan is a, a regular teacher in our, our MAG program, our Master of Arts program. He's taught courses on sectionalism and civil war, civil war and reconstruction, uh, and among others, including a, a, a text course on Hemingway, which you're also teaching again in the spring, I believe, Dan. Is that right? Yes, and everyone should sign up for it. <laughs> It's a life-changing experience. Yeah, I, I'm a, a big Hemingway aficionado, so I'd be delighted to do it. I'm happy to do it. It's a great course. I had the honor of sitting in on a few sessions the last time you taught it. It was really fantastic. So, well, th Thank you so much. I appreciate those comments. Um, Eric Sands is also joining us. He's Associate Professor of Government at Berry College in Georgia. He's author of American Public Philosophy and the Mystery of Lincolnism, which was, which was published in 2009. Uh, uh, Eric is also a regular teacher in our MAG program. He's taught courses on the Supreme Court. And uh, I think, Eric, you're teaching sectionalism and civil war in the spring. Uh, yeah. Light course, right? Yeah. Fantastic. Looking forward to that as well. Thanks uh, to both of you for being here this morning. It's always good to see you both. Um, let, me, um, let me let me just, just say a quick word or two here to begin. People joining us, if you look at the list of presidents that we're talking about this fall and in the spring, uh, you might notice that James Paul seems to stand out as unusual because he's not typically thought of as one of the most well-known or, or, or well-studied presidents. Uh, he's been called, among other things, uh, the least known consequential president. 
Um, so I'm just going to start with a big question to both of you, and then we can go however you want to go from here. Um, why is it worth our time to study James K. Polk? What's significant about Polk and his presidency? I, I, I have to admit it up front, I know very little about Polk. I think like a lot of people, um, I mean, I know he was involved in the, in the uh, Mexican War and um, is often associated with Manifest Destiny, but, but why is he worth studying? I'll let either of you start. Do you, do you want me to lead off or Eric? No. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. Um, uh, I would just say that um, I think Polk is very consequential because, of course, the result of the Mexican War is the uh, reopening of the uh, question of uh, slavery and its expansion, which really consumes the, the nation from 1846 all the way up to <laughs> 1861 when the, the country breaks apart. And, um, um, you know, Polk is a complicated figure in some respects and in other respects. He's not, um, he's very, he's very much a disciple of Andrew Jackson. Uh, he's, he, in fact, he was referred to, of course, as young Hickory as Jackson was old Hickory. And he comes with all of the, uh, uh belief in that Jacksonian philosophy, um, of, uh, of favoring a kind of agrarian idyll and opposing the uh, Whig uh, economic program, Clay's American system. He's also a devoted expansionist. Uh, you know, I see what there's a question already from one of our uh, from one of our uh, uh, teachers or one of the people who signed in, uh, wondering you know, whether uh, Polk was kind of an expansionist in global terms. I would say that he's certainly expansionist as far as the the, the American continent. Um, as an, as a believer in this kind of agrarian ideal, uh, you know, more land is more uh, land available for more farmers and farmers are the most virtuous of citizens. And it should also be said, uh, that Polk as president set himself certain objectives and, and achieved every one. I mean, he, he wanted to reduce the tariff. Um, he wanted to reestablish Van Buren's, uh, independent treasury, which he did. Uh, he wanted to settle the Oregon boundary question, which he did. He wanted to acquire California, which he did. Now, in achieving the uh, the latter, um, you know, of course, you you open the great big create a big matzo ball of a question about what to do about slavery in the territory acquired from Mexico, which spins out of control. Um, but be that as it may, uh, I think it would be fair to say if you look at what he intended to achieve. Uh, and he and he writes this down as he's starting his presidency. This is what I want to do. He goes right down the list and achieves it. One other thing I would say about Polk, and then I'll stop uh, and like Eric kick in, is um, Polk was a workaholic. Polk worked assiduously as president of the United States. Uh, he was a very partisan Democrat. He feuded with the Whigs to the point of uh, being detrimental to the war effort against Mexico. Uh, you know, he didn't want to promote Whig generals and he put Democrat hacks in key positions simply because they were Democrats. Uh, he was, a, he, he tended to be rather a humorless character. Um, he worked so much. He literally didn't take a vacation while he was president for four years, uh, that he worked so hard and so much that he damaged his health and died uh, a few months after he left the presidency in the summer of 1849, even though, uh, at the age of 53. So um, by way of introduction, those are some remarks on Polk, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to Eric here. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll follow up on the, uh, you know, the working so hard. Uh, you know, Polk is, is sometimes seen as 
a precursor to the modern presidency. Um, and I mean, he's very significant in that respect, uh, that he, he sort of is an early model uh, of what modern presidents are, are going to become. Um, I mean, he dominated the presidency while he was in office. Uh, he took, took possession of, of every task um, that was afforded to the executive branch, uh, rigorously um, oversaw the work of, of all of his uh, cabinet heads, uh, in some cases even did their work. Um, <laughs> there was a, a story that there was, a, I think, a 16-week period during the summer uh, where the cabinet heads were alternately heading off on vacation and doing certain things, and so Polk would fill in for them. Um, during the entire time. And, you know, it was it was almost as though the entire government was being administered by one man. Um, and, I, and it says something about the guy's work ethic. Um, and he, he writes he writes extensively in his diaries about how, you know, he got up early in the morning and would work until late, late, late at night uh, every single day because he he understood that if the executive branch was going to operate the way that he saw fit, as president, he had to administer every part of it. He had to have knowledge of what every single department was doing and what all of the issues were affecting uh, his department heads. So, I mean, he went right down to the level of reviewing reports uh, that they would submit to Congress before they were submitted. Um, so he was very determined to make the executive branch his um, and to put his imprint on everything that went on. Um, this went into his appointments as well. I mean, he appointed men that he knew that he could master. Uh, and, you know, there were others he could have chosen from. I mean, Van Buren was certainly out there as, as a possibility. Uh, there were other large figures uh, that he could have staffed in his cabinet. He bypassed all of those choices uh, out of the consideration that he wanted men that he could control um, and would make sure to toe the administration line. So, he placed a premium on administrative unity more than probably anything else. Uh, everybody had to toe the administration's line, um, and he really did not tolerate any deviation from it. Uh, and he expected the same amount of hard work out of his cabinet officers that he put in himself. Um, and he would send little nasty notes uh, to cabinet <laughs> officers that missed cabinet meetings. Um, but, I mean, you know... It, you could kind of understand missing the cabinet meetings. I mean, there were hundreds of them while he was in office. Uh, he, I, it was really remarkable how, how much emphasis and how much time he took into what was going on. Um, I think he's also significant in that, you know, he's the first president uh, to preside over a major war with no previous military experience. And really, I think, demonstrates to us the possibility of, uh, you know, a true civilian head of the military uh, successfully leading a war effort. And, you know, Polk didn't just stand back and kind of let the generals prosecute the war. He took an active part in military strategy. He took an active part in, uh, as, as Dan already said, <laughs> you know, appointments and um, all, all kinds of things that, that related to the war effort um, and was successful. I mean, granted, there were some Keystone Cops moments during the Mexican War. Um, there's no question about that, but uh, that's probably true of, of just about every war effort we've been through. But I mean, I think the, the view is he was highly successful um, in the prosecution of the Mexican War. So, you know, in general, uh, there's, there's a lot of firsts, you know, he's also the first dark horse candidate uh, to become, to be nominated as, as president of the United States. Uh, nobody was really expecting a Polk presidency in 1844. Um, 
Uh, Van Buren was expected to be the nominee. Uh, and, you know, his position on Texas annexation really sunk his nomination chances. But uh, Polk, I, I believe, Dan might have to correct me on this, but uh, I, I don't think Polk was even nominated or received a vote until the ninth ballot. That's uh, correct. At, at, the, at the convention. So, I mean, that's, that's remarkable. Somebody, I, Polk had come out of it hoping he was going to be the vice presidential pick, but I, I don't think even he was expecting that uh, he could end up as president. So a lot of a combination of firsts um, and I think precursors to things to come. Uh, that that make Polk very significant for us. How does that how does it happen? I mean, there's so many good questions that come out of what you both were just saying. How does that where does Polk come from? What's his background? How does it happen that he goes into this convention, doesn't receive a vote until the ninth round, and he comes out president? Was he well known? Did he did he have a career in politics before this? Polk, Polk had been uh, had been in Congress for 14 years, and served, uh, four of which he was Speaker of the House. So he had, and and, and he'd been Governor of Tennessee. Uh, so he had a significant political career uh, and was not uh, unknown. I mean, uh, because he had been Speaker, uh, he was well known to the uh, you know the elite in the Democratic Party, and because of his association with uh, Jackson. Um, you know that that uh, and, and, and indeed is is a, he he made a conscious effort to link himself to Jackson whenever whenever he could, um, i.e. the nickname Young Hickory. Um, so he was he was well known. But as Eric quite aptly said, uh, you know the idea that Polk, Polk would become uh, president forty four would have been regarded as absurd uh, until uh, both. Um, Clay and uh, Van Buren wrote letters in April of 44 condemning Texas annexation, of course, and that doomed their candidacy. Uh, both of them, and of course, Clay goes on to to become the Whig nominee, but he loses the general election And Van Buren. I mean, there's this great letter that Andrew Jackson writes to Van Buren after he condemns annexation, basically saying, uh, listen, Van Buren, you ain't it <laughs> anymore. You know, you've you you know we can't support you because you're against uh, annexation and you're against expansionism writ large. Well, Polk was a vigorous exponent of expansionism. It was part of his uh, ID as a politician. So, um, you know he's got you know just to answer your question, I'll let air kick in. He's got the um, he's got the street cred as a Tennessee politician, and because in part because of his own career, but also his association with Jackson, and then he. Um, has uh, this uh, wonderful track record of, of, of speaking in favor of expansionism, and I think that a lot, a lot of the history in the period, or at least a lot of the stuff that the, our colleagues are, are going to be reading who are listening in, a lot of the historiography on this period suggests that expansionism, and this is part of the whole manifest destiny mania, expansionism was all the rage. It was the latest, you know, it was the issue that people got excited about. They were tired of debates over the uh, independent treasury and the national bank, these kind of esoteric issues that, that seemed kind of interesting and salient in 1832, but by 1844 seemed, uh, you know, uh, you know, it was tiresome. You know, we were talking about this for 10, 12 years. Uh, how about, you know, this, this expansionism? I mean, it was, it was, it was almost a national mania. Um, certainly you see a lot of, uh, of uh, discussion of it in the newspapers in the period. Of course, it was a regular part of the rhetoric of the Democratic Party, or at least some Democrats. Van Buren had the wisdom to recognize that it was a it was problematic. Uh, 
but people like Jackson, Polk, and others uh, embraced it wholeheartedly. We had uh, we had participants read uh, the the piece by John O'Sullivan. I'm not yeah, sure which of you recommended that piece. Yeah. It's a quintessential statement on manifest destiny in many ways. So this was pretty widely, this was pretty widely agreed to among among the American public at the time. Do you think this way of thinking about manifest destiny? Eric, I thought maybe you want to kick in on this. Yeah, I mean, I I think this was something that was embraced um, by a, a lot of Americans. I'm always reluctant to say everybody. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, if there was a difference in the part, I mean, I think both Whigs and Democrats embraced the idea of manifest destiny, but they embraced it in different ways. Um, for the Whigs, expansion should take place through example. Um, you, you essentially put on display your free institutions, your commitment to the rule of law, your commitment to constitutionalism, and then other countries want to join in. Um, and they ask if they can uh -huh. join the project. Um, so that, that essentially expansionism should always be peaceful, um, whereas Democrats were much more willing to take take the line of, of expansionism by force if necessary. Um, and, you know, Polk, I think, strikes the perfect balance here. You know, <laughs> did, wh wh where exactly was that spot? When the Mexican army attacked. Um, so, you know, it, it, it doesn't take the form of, of like an invasion um, as much as, no, we were attacked. But um, I, I think the Democrats in general were more aggressive uh, in their, their approach to manifest destiny than, than the Whigs were. Um, you know, Chris, Zach, I, go ahead. Right. Go ahead, Eric. I was just going to I was going to bring slavery into it, which is going to complicate it further. But I wonder, how <laughs> much that, I mean, we know it's slavery is a big part of this question. Um, Again, this is you know this is pre 1850s, so you've got Whigs and Democrats, and it's not quite clear where the where you know how divided the parties are over slavery. I know you've got some views on slavery that transcend the party lines at the time, but slavery was was you know how how big of a role did slavery play in the Democratic argument in favor of manifest destiny? We can come back to that. That's a big question. I know. We can come back to that if you like. I, I think it's I think it's an important part of the context within which Polk's Polk has his presidency. I mean, it's important to recognize uh, that in the 1830s, uh, slavery as an issue becomes increasingly polarized between the North and the South. I mean, you have the rise of the radical abolition movement, um, and you have riots against the abolition movement in the North. I can see that in uh, uh, you know kind of mob violence. Uh, in the North against the abolitionists, and in the South, of course, and Clement Eaton's memorable phrase uh, establishes this kind of intellectual blockade where they really cease to talk about slavery in newspapers or in speeches in anything except positive, uh, positive terms. And at the same time, uh, Southern politicians are very much aware that their dominance of the federal government is kind of slipping away uh, thanks to immigration into the North. I mean, in the gag rule, uh, the rule that uh, where abolitionist petitions would be tabled when they arrived in Congress, which passed in 36, uh, is repealed in 44, you know, the same year that Polk uh, becomes president of the United States. So uh, I'm always reluctant to suggest, and I think it's false to suggest that all of this expansionism is directly linked to slavery. However, you know, as, as the sole issue, you know, because uh, I think it's much more complicated than that. 
be that having said that, I do think that slavery is a potent uh, uh, backdrop to all of this. I mean, William Cooper's brilliant book, Slavery and Politics, uh, details of how in the South, congressional elections increasingly turned between Whigs and Democrats over who, who, who made the most robust promise to defend slavery. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, so con- congressional candidates in the 40s in the South would get up and say, well, I, you know, I just want you to know that I'm the one who is the, uh, you know, going to protect slavery from these dogged abolitionists. And by the way, my opponent is a secret abolitionist. He has these abolitionist sentiments, uh, uh, so on and so forth. So slavery is in the process of poisoning the politics of the United States. It's a process. It's not happening you know, overnight. But it's a process that's underway in a very dramatic way. And that's, you know, uh, uh, why the acquisition of all this territory becomes so hugely uh, uh, controversial. You know, all this stuff is just kind of simmering. And then it goes into a boil uh, with uh, Wilmot's proviso and, and, and uh, trashes the, you know, turns the Congress into nuts for four years. We just got a question from, uh, from uh, Billy Gallagher on, on the Wilmot proviso. Uh, as a possible turning point in all this is splitting the Democrats over slavery. Can, can either of you say something more about how the Wilmot Proviso plays into this? Well, I mean, it, it did certainly split the Whigs and Democrats. Um, I, you know, Northern Whigs, Northern Democrats generally supported the Proviso. Southern Whigs, Southern Democrats generally opposed it. And, you know, for, for Polk and, and for, you know, the, the Democrats, I mean, this this is a very clear indication um, in many respects of just how divisive the slavery issue is and that politics, at least when it comes to slavery, is is being defined increasingly by sectionalism as opposed to partisanship. Um, That that slavery is not tracking, um, you know, sort of partisan lines as much as it's tracking sectional lines. So in one sense, the acquisition of the new territories um, you know, it, it's very, very clear that a plan needs to be in place for how slavery is going to be carried into those territories um, or not carried into those territories, uh, depending on, you know, what we agree to do. And that this is going to be a hugely divisive issue between North and South. And, you know, this is one area that I think Polk, you know, could, could is, is open to some criticism. You know, he he basically says, look, as far as I can come up with, there's three ways we can deal with this. You know, one, we can punt. Uh, we can basically, <laughs> you know, we, we'll, we'll punt on it and we'll wait until these territories organize into states. And once they apply for statehood, then we can decide the slavery question. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's, that's option number one. Uh, and, and, of course, the advantage of option number one is I'm going to be long out of office before we have to worry about that. Um, option number two is we can just extend the Missouri Compromise line all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and, you know, so that'll put Southern California into the pro-slavery area. That'll put New Mex- the territories of New Mexico into the pro-slavery area. Everything above it, you know, will be, be you know, anti-slavery. He says, or we could leave it to judicial determination. I will simply put this before the courts and we'll let the courts decide how it should be resolved. But you know, interestingly, Polk doesn't really take a side among those three options. <laughs> you know, he kind of offers this up to Congress as these, these are the three ways I could do it. And 
I'd say he comes closest to endorsing the Missouri Compromise option, um, saying, you know, let's let's extend the line out to the Pacific Ocean. You know, the Missouri Compromise line has managed to manage this, the slavery issue for this many years. You know, let's let's let it continue to be the way that we handle the, the slavery question. Um, but yeah, the, the slavery issue is morphing. Um, it's it's becoming more virulent. Uh, the, the the opposition to extension of slavery into the territories uh, is becoming more pronounced. Uh, it's it not not so clear that's just a simple elegant solution to the problem any longer. Let me let me just jump in uh, and say a little bit more about Wilmot because. Uh, uh, and, uh, actually, I'm kind of amplifying a very great point that Eric made uh, at the beginning where he talked about the fact that Polk dominated the presidency and was very hands-on, which is absolutely right. Uh, one aspect of this was that uh, Polk feuded with Van Buren and Jackson about his cabinet appointments. They both thought that they saw Polk as kind of a junior, junior, junior JV uh, politician. And they were these seasoned veterans. After all, they'd both been president of the United States. And so he's kind of besieged by uh, messages saying uh, from both Van Buren and Polk or Van Buren and Jackson at the beginning of his presidency saying, well, here's, your, who, here's who you should appoint to the cabinet. And here's what you need to do. And here's what you need, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Polk's response is basically to say, I'm going to appoint whoever I want. And, uh, and he does. Uh, the point is that Polk feuds with important factions within the Democratic Party. He, he pursues his own agenda. You know, he vetoes internal improvement bills. He reduces the tariff, which made the Pennsylvania faction furious. Um, he blows off Van Buren and Jackson in the first months of his presidency. And as, as Eric correctly says, he's very much his own man. This is the backdrop for Wilmot's proviso. I mean, Wilmot obviously is very concerned with the issue of slavery's expansion into the new territories. But the upshot is uh, part of the groundwork is laid for his uh, uh, proviso by Polk's feuding with important factions within the Democratic Party. Uh, in other words, they're already ticked off, <laughs> you know, and then along comes the slavery issue and, and, and Polk's, you know, the acquisition of this additional territory and what to do about it. But they're, uh, they just seize upon that immediately in part because they're already irritated with him. So I just wanted to throw that out. I mean, it's important to note that Wilmot, of course, is from Pennsylvania. Um, and, and, and Pennsylvania was roiled and angry about Polk over the tariff issue. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so Brian has submitted a question, which I think is the next logical question. If sectionalism was a key to Polk's view of expansion, did that contribute to his willingness to talk with Great Britain and his willingness to go to war with Mexico? I don't know the answer to that. So I'm well, I was I was going to wait uh, since I just blabbed blathered for I was going to wait for did, Eric. Do you want to field that? I was I was looking at the question here. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I had my my uh, uh, sound is cutting in and out a little bit, so I had missed it when Chris said it. Uh, let me take a look at it here. You can go ahead while I take a look. I guess my question. I guess the reason I thought that was the next sort of logical question. I guess it's it, it depends on the answer to another question, which is. Was Polk actually sectional in his thinking? And I thought, Dan, you were suggesting that he was in, in, in his willingness to sort of uh, act in opposition to you know, Pennsylvania factions and things like this. Well, Polk, I, 
You know, I would say, I, I, this is an interesting question. Let me just throw in on this, and then I'll let Eric kick in, too. Um, I view Polk as a Jacksonian. I think his, I think his guiding lodestar, his philosophical lodestar, is Jacksonism, uh, uh, which means he's opposed to the Whig economic agenda. He's opposed to National Bank. He's opposed to tariff for protectionist reasons. He's opposed uh, for, to internal improvements. Um, he's a very much an expansionist in the same way that Jackson was basically expansionist throughout his career. Now, is that sectional? Well, there are elements of it that are clearly sectional. It does reflect the South's kind of overwhelmingly agrarian nature. But I, I, I feel uncomfortable with simply calling him a sectionalist because then you get the, you, you get the impression that he was this kind of simple kind of particularist. You know, he, just, he was just representing the South. No, Polk believed that this kind of, as Jackson did, that that kind of agrarian uh, agenda uh, in a kind of Jeffersonian way was what was best for the whole country. Um, now, of course, it was also great for the planter class, of which they were both members. I mean, they both had plantations. They both were slave owners. They both were lawyer planters. Uh, so it was certainly good for them. But I always feel uncomfortable with suggesting that, 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 that they're that narrow. Um, I don't think so. I think philosophically, they, they believe that that kind of Jacksonianism is right for everybody. And, it's, and, and, that's, and the country should kind of continue. You know, they have this organic conception of the United States, you know, that it, it, it should remain in the kind of what, what would be considered the youthful stage of its existence, populated by farmers, because that's where liberty is going to be maximum and uh, uh, power will be widely distributed. You know, you won't have that kind of central government that will be a great threat if you have the agrarian ideal. That, that's really interesting, Dan. And so I, I, part of the idea, I guess, that, that, that Polk was sectional uh, in his thinking is that is the Texas controversy is, is more closely connected to the question of slavery and expansion in the South. But the Oregon question is interesting because, of course, it's harder to tie Polk's motives there to something more uh, sectional or even more directly related to slavery. So, uh, no, that's and that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, Polk does. I mean, his his uh, uh, embrace he embraces what he refers to as the reannexation of Texas and the uh, uh, all of Oregon. You know, it was fifty four forty or fight, and Oregon can hardly be construed as as uh, as being relevant to slavery. Uh, you know, it's it's. So the point is that his his philosophy of expansionism was a kind of national philosophy of expansionism. It was not necessarily simply uh, sexual in nature. It did have sexual aspects, but I think it's simplistic to just write him off as as a sectional, uh, uh, you know, a solely sectional or sec guided by some kind of uh, southern uh, particularism in the way that I think Calhoun was. Yeah, and it, it's worth noting. I mean, and Dan, I agree with everything you just said there. I, I you know, uh, uh, Polk couldn't stand Calhoun. <laughs> As, well, many other people couldn't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the two politicians that he just could not work with um, were, were John Calhoun of South Carolina and Andrew Johnson of Tennessee. Um, <laughs> Couldn't stand either one of them and, and just couldn't find a way to work with them. But, you know, I, I think at his core, um, Polk was a nationalist. Um, I, I think, you know, he was first and foremost concerned about 
um, the nation as a whole. He saw himself as a representative of the nation as a whole. I mean, that's that's one of the key aspects of understanding his theory of the presidency is that he had a special claim and a special legitimacy as president because only he spoke for the people as a whole. Um, and, and I think he carried that through into the way that he conducted the presidency. Um, that being said, he could use sectional tactics to achieve national ends. Um, and I think he did that in a number of instances um, where he played factions off against one another or even played one side off of the next. But, um, you know, as I had said earlier, with his threefold plan, you know, for how to deal with the slavery question um, and, and territorial expansion, I mean, I think if he was truly sectional, you know, he, he would have he would have either embraced the, the will not proviso or he would have said, let's expand. You know, all of the new territories are subject to the expansion of slavery. And he, he did neither. He, he instead tried to kind of split the middle and uh, find a way of navigating through um, that could maintain a compromise or create a new compromise in the end. So I, I think very much Polk saw himself in, in a more nationalist kind of vein. Yeah, let me let me just let me just say one one thing, and uh, that is exactly right uh, what Eric has just said, and, and uh, I was just going to just to to emphasize the correctness of this. Um, you know, Polk was a Jacksonian and very devoted to Jackson. Remember, Texas declared its independence from Mexico. You know, after that short little bloody fighting in 1836, and immediately wanted to join the Union. And Jackson, who was an avowed expansionist, uh, rebuffed them. <laughs> you know, uh, Jackson did nothing to bring Texas in in the last year or so of his presidency. He, uh, because he feared that it would royal, that it would be regarded as some kind of a, a sectional irritant, and Van Buren did nothing either. So that just go suggests uh, the correctness of the argument that Eric just made about how these men were nationalists rather than sectionalists. I mean, if they were obsessed with uh, achieving uh, sectional advantage, they would have moved immediately to bring Texas in. Uh, but they, you know, they waited and, and, and looked for a more opportune moment where they thought that maybe it wouldn't be such a, so controversial. Now, of course, it ends up being controversial anyway. But the point is, they were very cautious about this in a way that suggests that they weren't obsessed with this, you know, pursuing sectional advantage. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So while we're on this, there are a number of great questions coming in. But while we're on this topic, can we we talk about the the difficulties involved in, in the in the beginning and the origins of the of the Mexican War? Um, we had people read a couple of speeches, one from Henry Clay in opposition, and another from the young Abraham Lincoln in his single term in, in the House in opposition <laughs> to the war. Um, uh, Lincoln raises a legal question, right? It raises the question about the legality of the war. Uh, Clay, Clay begins his speech by regarding to this as an unnatural war. And um, I'm wondering if both of you can say something about the, the sort of complexities of how this comes about and how much, is, how much opposition is there to this war and what are the grounds of the opposition to the war? What are, what are the objections to Polk's, um, to Polk's war? I'll let either of you tackle that. I was going to let Eric go since I just spoke, but I can, you know, whatever you want to do, I can start too. Yeah, you can go ahead. That's all right. Uh, I, okay. Um, I would just say um, um, 
Well, this is a this is a really interesting question, and it's a complex question. Uh, Lincoln, of course, um, you know, his speech against the Mexican War is basically the speech of a young lawyer. You know, uh, it's a, it's it's a it's a lawyer's brief against the causes and the reasons that Polk has cited for the war, specifically suggesting that the war, in fact, had begun on Mexican territory. Now, the great question is, was you know, the, the uh, territory between the Nueces River and the Rio Grande Mexican territory or the territory of Texas? I mean, that was the dispute. Um, this is my view of this, uh, and it doesn't necessarily jibe with, with that of others, but this is based on my own reading and research over the years, and that is that um, I think that what Polk was doing was attempting to acquire this additional territory without war, and that is to say Polk engaged in very aggressive diplomacy backed by the army in an effort to get uh, Mexico to, um, you know, ex first of all, accept annexation and then surrender California and, and some other portions of its territory. Part of that uh, aggressive diplomacy meant uh, moving the army first to the uh, Corpus Christi area and then eventually to the Rio Grande. Uh, but it's a process. You know, I do think it's something of a myth, and I don't agree, as some have suggested, that Polk was deliberately trying to provoke a war with Mexico. If you look at his correspondence, if you look at the correspondence of Buchanan, the Secretary of State, um, you don't see men bent on war with Mexico. You see men engaged in very aggressive diplomacy in an effort to get Mexico to accept the reality of Texas annexation, and then an attempt to, to, to get Mexico to surrender territory that in California that was increasingly populated by Americans. Um, the question of whether the Nueces of the Rio Grande was Mexican or American ter territory is an interesting one, and, and there's a lot that could be said about it. But to suffice to say, that it was an open question, it was not definitive, to, uh, that it was either belonged to either side. And Polk's moving of the uh, army to Corpus Christi first, and then eventually to the Rio Grande, is done in a kind of gradual way. It was the army, uh, it's first of all called the Army of Obser Observation, and then the Army of Occupation. I mean, the whole, it, you know, and it moved, you know, moves to Corpus Christi in, in uh, uh, March, February, March of 46, and then eventually to the Rio Grande. The point is that region, you know, he, he's moving the army in in that area, that disputed area, as a way to get Mexico to accept the reality that they are going to have to negotiate this issue. And after all, it is Mexican troops who cross the Rio Grande and attack uh, Taylor's force and bring on the conflict. I do think that Polk deserves some criticism for not really understanding the reality of Mexican politics. And the reality of Mexican politics in this period is that the Mexicans regarded the Mexican government, whether it was Herrera or, or Paredes, who, who uh, takes over as Polk, uh, during the Polk presidency, it is very aggressive. The reality of Mexican politics was that they were not going to accept, I mean, it, beca it had become an issue of national honor. And they were not going to accept Texas annexation. Uh, they were not prepared to cede more territories without fighting. Uh, and I don't think that anybody in Polk's um, circle got that. I don't think they understood that, um, that how much this would become an issue of national honor uh, for Mexico. Um, and it's tragic because I do think that um, from the Mexican perspective, they made a terrible mistake, um, you know, and, and you know, basically 
accepting conflict with the United States. Uh, it was a disaster for Mexico, um, the whole outcome. So in their, in their, uh, from their perspective, this, this emphasis on national honor and, and the idea that there was an insult um, to even suggest that this territory should be surrendered or given up, even though it was something of a fait accompli just by virtue of American settlement, uh, led to catastrophe. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's that, was, that was really that's interesting. It's um, but but Dan, I don't know if that clarifies it or makes it more complicated. <laughs> there you go. That's there's the rub. Yeah, complicated, right? What were um, what were uh, what were Clay's objections, and, and what what was Clay's role in the debate over the Mexican War? Anybody want to say anything about that? I mean, we've got this speech from Clay, and he, of course he brings the slavery issue up into it. But he's I mean, not objecting I, to the war on the sort of technical lawyer-like uh, legality question, is he? The way Lincoln is. I mean, I could, I could kick in and unless Eric wants to. No, you can go ahead with that one. I mean, Clay, Clay is, is Clay's objections are much more along the lines of of uh, the of Whig philosophy. I mean, he's. The, the Whigs regarded expansion as something that was threatening to national order. As you know from Whig ideology, always emphasized stability and order and the idea that, um, you know, we've got plenty of territory to deal with. If we absorb more, it may open a big can of, uh, you know, may open all the sectional issues and troubles again. And so let's, let's do, you know, um, Major Wilson has written a brilliant book about uh, this about the Whig emphasis on developing the national domain as it existed and the philosophical uh, problems associated with um, uh, additional expansionism. So from Clay's perspective, he regards uh, Polk as threatening that uh, stability and order that Whigs valued so much and leading the country down the path of catastrophe. Uh, and it has to be said, I think I think one of the great tragedies of this period is that um, because of Clay's, and th this is more of a, a comment on Clay personally rather than a direct reference to his speech, but I think one of the tragedies of this period is that Clay uh, was very frustrated uh, with, you know, the, the Tyler administration. You know, he feuded, of course, famously with President Tyler after he tried to dictate his course, and then losing the 44 election, which was re really Clay's last realistic chance to become president. Um, I think he's really uh, in a uh, and, and but but uh, he's dealing also with the overwhelming popularity of expansionism in Kentucky and the writ large in the western portion of the United States. Clay is at a very high frustration uh, level. Um, so and, and you can see that throughout this period, he's just uh, you know he's he's lost the presidency. Um, he probably recognizes that his chances of winning it are, are very are slim and none now. Um, the country is embarking on a path that he thinks is terribly perilous and, in fact, proves to be uh, terribly perilous. Um, he loses his son. His son volunteers uh, and serves in the Mexican army and is killed in action uh, in a rather dramatic way. And it makes all the papers of the United States. So he loses his son. Um, all that emotion and pathos is reflected in his, in his actions throughout this period, his frustration with losing the presidency is upset over the course that Polk was pursuing uh, his emotion over losing a son. 
Yeah, that's great. We've just had a couple of other questions building off of, of what you're what you're saying. Uh, Brian asked if Paul did not take the time to understand the Mexican viewpoint. Was he surprised the war started, or did he actually expect the war to take place? Uh, I think I think he was very surprised. Uh, you know, it's always important. I see there's another question about Polk's envoy Sladell. Uh, Polk did send a diplomatic envoy to Mexico. Unfortunately, he named him Minister Plenipotentiary, and the Mexicans had said, we'll receive a commissioner, uh, but not a minister. And they, they were upset that Polk sent a minister because, or someone, someone named a minister, because, um, and this is, you know, this is just something of an aside, and I'll come back to the question, but um, the Mexican, you know, the, the point is, Polk sends this diplomat down to Mexico in the fall of 45. He arrives, but he's named a minister, and the Mexicans felt, you know, remember they had broken off diplomatic relations with the United States in March of 45. They felt that uh, they could not receive a minister. This would, in effect, be, uh, if they did, a, a tantamount to reestablishing diplomatic relations with the United States. They would receive someone who's named a more minor <laughs> a diplomatic official, a commissioner. Uh, so it was on this rather, you know, uh, minor issue, plus the whole concept of national honor, that they refused to even talk to Sladell in any kind of major way. I mean, he was allowed to present his credentials, but they never had a single conference with him in a set o over these substantive issues. The point is that Polk thought that Mexico's logical course was to treat with Sladell and come to some kind of settlement. And when Sladell comes back to the United States, in March of 46, Polk is frankly, and Buchanan are dumbfounded. You know, they're, they're just startled that uh, they would not pursue this logical course in their minds. But that, you know, uh, just demonstrates their ignorance of the reality of Mexican politics. I mean, they were getting a lot of information from Mexico by various, from various Americans, but many of them weren't not, uh, you know, frankly, didn't understand the, uh, Mexico or the um, character of Mexican politics in this period. They too saw it through a kind of American prism and thought, well, the logical thing for Mexico to do in this situation is come to some kind of diplomatic arrangement with the United States and were very surprised. So I think, you know, this is another reason why I think it's a myth that Polk maneuvered the United States in the war. If you look at his correspondence in his diary, he's surprised by the, the this turn of events. Uh, and it And if he was bent on you know, some kind of, uh, you know, scheme to get the country into war so we could get territory, there would not be the sense of surprise over the way things are going. You know, if he had a conscious design to it, it would be more like, well, I'm isn't it wonderful? Mexico has insulted Slidell and sent him back to us. Uh, now we can, uh, you know, we can proceed with my evil plan to, uh, you know, dupe Mexico into war and acquire all this territory. No, he's, he's surprised. I mean, K. Jack Bauer, who has written, I think, the definitive book on the Mexican War, says uh, Polk was pursuing everything, all the, the, the correspondence, Polk's, Buchanan's, the various diplomats suggest, they were pursuing diplomacy. Now, they did it, they did it poorly. <laughs> you know, it didn't go very well. But there's no suggestion that, uh, to me, and to other scholars, that Polk was engaged in some kind of, you know, um, endeavor to to uh, to maneuver the country into to war. And and I mean, some of this might go back a little bit to, you know, again, Polk, Polk's 
decision to to really try to dominate the presidency. I mean, he doesn't surround himself with a lot of advisors and, and experts that I would say could have given him really good advice on Mexico. Um, you know, he's he's got Buchanan, who was probably you know his his most capable advisor, but Buchanan was flaky. Um, and <laughs> I, I, and I'm, I'm I'm being I'm being somewhat generous. <laughs> I mean, Polk, Polk at many times didn't really know what to do with Buchanan, didn't know whether to sort of take him at his word. Um, Buchanan flip-flopped on things all the time. Um, you know, he just kind of followed the political winds. But, you know, Robert Walker and William Marcy, um, you know, probably one of the most capable minds in his cabinet was George Bancroft, um, but he was only in the cabinet for a year. Um, Bancroft also had one of the best quotes on, on Polk um, about uh, his, his presidency. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it, it's not so clear that he's getting the best information, um, that he's surrounded by people who can give him good insight into Mexican politics, Mexican history, um, into how Mexico is likely to respond. Um, and, and I absolutely agree with Dan. I, I think the war caught him completely off guard. Um, but at the same time, he made the most of it. Um, and, you know, certainly once shots were fired, the sticky question, which he had been wrestling with for those who advocated the idea of, you know, to hell with what the Mexicans want. Let's 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 just take the land by force. Um, you know, he said, well, I, you know, I'm, I can't get the votes in Congress for that. Well, once those shots are fired, that solves that problem. Um, you know, he's got the votes at that point, And now now they can proceed forward into, you know, a different plan. You know, that being said, you know, with, with Polk as the, you know, the expansionist, you know, he does run into a number of parties who start advocating the total Mexico policy. Um, and, you know, we can't forget that there were people who said, let's just take all of the Mexican territory. Why, why limit ourselves to California, New Mexico, Texas? Let, let's, let's take all of Mexico. And, you know, Polk resisted this and, and you know, and, and actually put, pushed back. Um, in some cases, he got an earful from people like Calhoun saying, well, we, we don't want to grant citizenship to millions of Mexicans. Um, that's, that's not something that, that we want. We have to you know, keep, keep the, the country pure in terms of the, the, the dominancy of the white race. Um, but I don't think it was really racism that, that motivated Polk on this. I think it was simply an idea that to claim all of that territory was illegitimate. Um, and that there was, there was a certain amount that could be legitimately claimed in the name of nationalism and manifest destiny, but more than that um, was, was, was not really going to be legitimate. That's fascinating, Eric, because once again, what you're, you're, you're sort of painting Polk as a kind of middle ground somehow between the extreme views of somebody like Calhoun and maybe Henry Clay on the other end, right? Calhoun, why not take it all? Well, take more, but, uh, you know, he seemed to be much more in favor of expansion than, than most. Henry Clay's argument is, if I understood it correctly, let's not, let's not bite off more than we can chew, right, so that it doesn't mind the sort of, undermine the sort of order stability of the place. Polk has in his mind, it seems, if I'm understanding you guys correctly, Polk, Polk has a kind of reasonable limit in his mind as to what, how much territory we should take in the name of manifest destiny? Am I understanding that correctly? And it's and it's it's limited somehow by by what? I guess that's my question. Why, why does Polk in the end say this is what we're 
or agree with the idea that we're, you know, we're taking more than what was originally disputed over Texas, and we end up with the territories that you mentioned earlier. Well, I think Eric has is, is, is said it correctly that Polk, uh, uh, you know, when he said that, and, and correct me if I'm, if I, I don't want to mischaracterize what you're saying, but basically uh, it's the, the idea that Polk is in favor of expansion, but he recognizes that taking all of Mexico would be not really not a legitimate claim. Uh, in other words, I think Polk, Polk is in favor of expansion, but recognizes that it's legitimate when it's an area that Americans are, are have become the predominant settlers in, like Texas, uh, like portions of California, which are filled up with Americans. Um, okay. I think that's I think that's the limitation, uh, and I and I also think Polk, you know, Polk was a a, a a very intelligent fellow. I think he recognizes that biting off some immense that that immense amount of territory would lead to years of strife and would involve some kind of significant army occupation. And, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the American conception of what the military is, should be, of course, is still dominated by this militia thinking, uh, particularly in the Democratic Party. Um, uh, so, you know, the idea of, you know, the, the militia, I mean, uh, of course, Winfield Scott is hampered on the, in the campaign against Mexico City because some of the militia troops, uh, their, their term of service, Ended and they just said, "Well, we're leaving." You know, we we signed up for a year. I know we're right out the gate of Mexico City, but uh, have a nice day. <laughs> you know, we're going we're going back to Tennessee or Kentucky or wherever because our term of service is up. So, yeah, for all yeah for all those reasons, I think there's a, there was a natural limitation to his expansionism, which again suggests uh, that he's he, you know as Eric has correctly said, he's much more of a nationalist. Uh, in his thinking than uh, sectionalist, while at the same time recognizing the, the sectional advantages uh, that can that can come from some of this stuff. Yeah, that's great. And Eric, I'm, I'm glad you brought brought us back around to uh, something like, you know, uh, Polk's own personality in this or his views of the presidency and how, how I didn't realize how much that actually shaped this argument and, and, and his views on the Mexican War. And Erica, when you were talking earlier about his, um, his uh, in how in many ways he's the sort of predecessor to the modern presidency, there were a number of questions that came up uh, in relation to that. Um, uh, so I've just I've noted a few of them. Uh, oh, Eric, you just brought up again the, the fact that he, as one of the reasons why he was caught off guard about the the fact that the war came, having to do with his, you know, he didn't hire or he didn't have many. Uh, really sound advisors around him. Why, why do you think he didn't do that? One of the questions that came up earlier was, um, did, did Polk distrust his, his cabinet? Um, or did he, did he think that he could handle it himself? Yeah, I think it was a combination of probably the, 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 the two. Um, I, I, I don't think he, he distrusted his cabinet. I mean, Polk, throughout his life, was a guy who was never very comfortable around large groups, um, crowds. Uh, he never, never liked mingling. When it's when he got married, his wife would put on these receptions uh, at his house and invite dignitaries over to try to give him the chance to squeeze and cheese with the movers and the shakers <laughs> and state politics. Um, and, uh, uh, all of those kinds of things. And his wife was effortless. You know, when it came to 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 you know working the room and and all of those things, Polk struggled. 
he just he was just never comfortable in any of these types of environments. Polk was always a guy who was, you know, most comfortable around a few loyal and tested personal friends. Um, that that was just where his comfort level was. And I think that really defines the state of his cabinet. Uh, he, he surrounded himself with people who were personally loyal to Polk, um, people who uh, he could trust, uh, he could count on. Uh, I, not all of them, I think, proved quite as trustworthy uh, as, he, uh, <laughs> as he originally had hoped. Um, but he was really looking for, I think, loyalty more than anything else. Um, and, you know, he could correct for whatever defects there were uh, in their capabilities um, by micromanaging their jobs. And Polk had every intention of micromanaging their jobs. Uh, so, I mean, there was there was nothing that went out of Buchanan's office that did not have Polk's eyes on it. Um, you know, Robert Walker and in the Treasury did not put out a single report to Congress without Polk having reviewed it and offered up criticism and made recommendations for changes. Um, same with Marcy, same with Bancroft. I mean, he just he, he, he put his fingerprint on every part of his presidency. And he thought he was fully capable of managing every part of his presidency. Uh, he thought he, he, he uh, possessed the experience. He thought he possessed the knowledge. And most of all, he knew what a hard worker he was. Um, this was instilled in him at a very young age by, by his mother. Um, the psychological portrait on Polk is that he developed a kind of fanatical um, work ethic uh, because he was so sickly as a child and never felt like he was able to do his part and kind of keep up uh, with the demands of the, the work of the home. And um, uh, I, I believe, Dan, maybe you remember this. I think he had gallstone surgery at the age of 17 without mm-hmm. anesthesia um, and with, with, uh, without any sort of antibiotics and stuff being offered at the time, which was an incredibly high-risk procedure. Um, so it's kind of a miracle he survived. Um, which aid, helped to ease some of his health, health issues. But, you know, the view was that the man was just tireless uh, when it came to performing the duties of, of his job. And, you know, I think he just believed there wasn't a problem that he couldn't work through and he couldn't figure out on his own if necessary. Um, and then working with his cabinet, um, being able to, to implement and carry out effectively. Uh, but, you know, even then, there's still going to be limits to what a president can do. And uh, I think on some of these issues, that's where we see, you know, Polk not succeed as, as far as he could have or get caught unawares um, is, uh, you know, he just wasn't necessarily surrounded by people who could who could give him the best advice at times. Eric, how far, how far beyond Jackson did Polk go in his control over the office? It sounds, I mean, he's, he's young Hickory, but and, and, and I can see the parallels with Jackson in many ways, but this seems to go far beyond even what Jackson is willing to yes, do. In, I, I think he went well beyond Jackson. Yeah, okay. I, I, you know, Jack, Jackson, Jackson sort of established, you know, a, a, a domination of his cabinet. Um, but in the notion of I'm in charge and you'll, you'll, check, you'll check with me before doing anything <laughs> too, too important. Yeah. You know, Polk was actively micromanaging every aspect of what his cabinet was doing um, to the point of even, you know, writing reports for them, writing up, um, you know, uh, things for the bureau chiefs. I, it was, I mean, it, it's, when, when you start reading about the level of control he exercised over his cabinet, it's staggering to think that one man could have done this. 
Um, it, it, it's truly remarkable. Um, but it, it also kind of speaks to, you know, Polk needing to loosen up the reins a little bit and allowing his subordinates to do their jobs and leaving him free to manage other parts of the presidency. Um, and, you know, because like one area that he did not do a particularly great job in was, was his head of state functions, um, which he absolutely hated anyway. So he was very glad to, to neglect those things. But yeah, receiving ambassadors, <laughs> receiving foreign heads of state, he, ab- he absolutely detested doing any of this stuff. <laughs> um, what, was his, what was his relationship with Congress like? You mentioned this earlier, Eric, as well. Did he have a Democratic Congress? I, I don't remember. He did for he did for his first two years. Uh, his second two years, uh, the Whigs were in control of one house or both. I'm not sure actually. Dan, do you know? I think one house. I think one house. Yeah. If I remember correctly. Was, was his relationship with Congress better than than say Jackson? Was he able to? Since we we start you started earlier, Eric, with sort of the, the, the idea that Polk in many ways was a as a predecessor to the modern presidency, was he willing to reach out and work with Congress on these questions, or yeah. how successful was he in that? He was he was willing to work, but I mean it was beyond that. Um, you know, it was not just proposing legislation; it, it was not just you know informing them of an agenda he'd like to see pursued. Sued. He invested all of himself into trying to get legislation passed. So he would actively lobby congressmen. Um, he would bring over congressional leaders to the White House. Uh, he did everything within his power and more um, to try to see uh, his his policies enacted. And I mean, the, the result of it, I mean, as, as Dan started out with, you know, he comes to office with four goals and he accomplishes all of them. I mean, that's that's a pretty remarkable thing for a president <laughs> to be able to do. And you don't do that well without having a good relationship with Congress and, and at least a working relationship with Congress. And, and Polk was largely able to do that. I mean, he was opposed on some things, um, and there were things Congress did that he vetoed and uh, he wasn't happy with. But uh, by and large, when it came to the, the, the largest things that he cared about, uh, he, he lobbied and, and worked tirelessly uh, to get them pursued and, and passed through Congress. One one thing I, I would like to say within this context too is that uh, Polk had taken the one term pledge, and I think that was a uh, in hindsight was a mistake. Although he you know he worked himself to death in four years, so he, even if he'd been reelected, they might have expired. But uh, had he run, but uh, by taking the one term pledge, uh, he caused himself a lot of grief because there was almost immediately jockeying. Uh, within the Democratic Party and 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 of course his political opponents too, uh, for uh, uh, you know those who were going to run against you know for the presidency in '48. Uh, I think Buchanan spends the entire Polk term uh, with that as his goal. <laughs> it's one of the reasons you know Eric correctly characterized Buchanan as a flake. I thought that was great. I thought that was great. Um, you know, he is a flake and, uh, he spends a, a lot of his motives and a lot of his actions during as secretary of state are basically to try to, uh, maneuver himself into the presidency as Polk's successor. And if Polk hadn't taken the one term pledge, that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have happened. Uh, and the other thing is, um, you know, some of the, some of the, um, uh, of his opponents on the Whig side, uh, are, are very active, uh, 
as uh, in pursuing the presidency early early on uh, in Polk's term, but for the same reason, you know, Zachary Taylor, for example, after he wins those uh, battles at Palo Alto and Resaca del Palma, right at the beginning of the war in uh, May of uh, 46, almost immediately is touted in uh, Whig newspapers as a potential candidate for the presidency. Taylor didn't have any conception of himself as being any kind of, having any kind of political career. He gets these uh, newspaper articles that are sent to him saying, uh, hey, by the way, you'd make a great candidate for the Whig party. And because Polk has taken the one-term pledge, I think Taylor starts to think, you know, maybe I am a, you know, maybe I am presidential material. So Polk, I think, opens himself up to a lot of grief uh, by taking the pledge. It's one of the reasons why I don't think it's a great idea uh, for presidency of the United States. You know, some people have talked about, well, you know, maybe we should have a presidency that has one six-year term eh, or one four-year term. I don't think it's a good idea for, for that reason. A great point. Yeah, somebody asked about that earlier. Somebody. Yeah, I, I was trying. Yeah, I was uh, kind of trying to address that um, within the context of that. There was another question submitted earlier about the allegations that Polk supporters stuffed the ballot box in in New York. Do any of you <laughs> about this? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> what about? Um, uh, Candy submitted a question earlier about um, she was tying some themes from Lincoln's Lyceum speech about the sort of spread of mob rule and uh, uh, the problem of mob rule as it was uh, becoming a problem in the 1840s. And she, she, in her question, she she's tying this to the question of the possibility of, of of mob rule in that disputed territory or parts of Texas where there's no legitimate government. I guess her question is. Um, I, I'm trying to piece together the question here. Um, isn't it better somehow? Uh, I'm paraphrasing. I guess the question is: Does it legitimize the war with Mexico to say that that what Polk was doing was trying to bring a kind of order to that territory that was that was sort of um, um, I, I don't know what the word is sort of unstable, chaotic, we're not sure who's actually ruling in this place. Her question is, wouldn't it be better for, uh, for Polk to, uh, to go ahead and do what he did as opposed to having to confront mob rule there and having to constantly deal with the threat of Americans losing their lives, trying to protect the land that they legitimately claimed as theirs? I mean, that was certainly the argument of the Texans. <laughs> you know, they wanted to... Uh... They wanted some kind of uh, order and stability. You know, the Texas Republic was constantly tottering on bankruptcy uh, and was not doing uh, well uh, as a governing entity for a variety of reasons. I do think, though, that this idea of mob violence, uh, and as Lincoln sketches in the Lyceum, um, is 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 more of a um, could more readily be used to condemn the Mexican War, to condemn Polk's expansionism, uh, because. Lincoln's argument, of course, in the Lyceum Address is that the country is spinning into chaos because people aren't respecting law. You know, he famously says, of course, let let uh, law and order become the political religion of the land, and uh, let it be let it be uh, spoken to every in, to every lisping babe. Uh, you know, so people would get it right from the cradle. Uh, so his his lament is that the country is be- becoming swept away by passion. 
and needs to be uh, to, to, to emphasize reason and order. Well, uh, you know, acquiring millions of acres from uh, Mexico uh, is hardly going to, you know, create a, an environment where there would be less mob violence or there'd be more stability and order, as the results suggest. I mean, one of, one of our participants uh, asked, can, can Polk be seen as the father of the Civil War? Uh, I think that's a little, I think that's a bit of a, a little too harsh. But he certainly, um, he certainly, by by reintroducing the question of slavery in the territories um, that had been adjudicated by the Missouri Compromise, by reintroducing it again, he roiled the body politic in a way that Lincoln, of course, and others and other Whigs were horrified uh, by, and 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 it leads to this uh, basically perpetual uh, debate uh, that isn't in the end, is resolved by civil war. Uh, you know, the, the, the question of slavery's expansionism and the ultimate fate of slavery. Uh, it really takes off after 46, and it's never really put to bed ex- until the war. Could it be said that Lincoln's opposition to, um, to to manifest destiny insofar as it was a motive for the Mexican War is that is that it was a, a movement motivated more by passion than reason? Is that what you were suggesting, Dan? Yes, I, well, I think that's part of it. I mean, it, it's a large argument, but I think that um, you know, this the Jacksonian age, of course, emphasizes feelings and emotions. I mean, it's the you know this romantic period. Um, it's part of the literature of the period. It's part of the ethos of American culture. It's an end of that kind of uh, that chin pulling, uh, you know, powdered wig set uh, emphasis on reason from the 18th century. And Lincoln, Lincoln, you know, and Lincoln is very concerned about that. I mean, that Lyceum speech, which, by the way, I think is a wonderful speech. Uh, sometimes is dissed by uh, some of Lincoln's biographers. It's not his. It's not up to the second inaugural. Well, nothing's up to the second inaugural. Uh, <laughs> I mean, is there any speech in the history of the American presidency up to second inaugural? I, I don't know. Uh, but but it is. I think it's a wonderful reflection of this concern on the part of Whigs with stability and order and the fact that the country is 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 kind of um is is drifting into chaos because of its these these issues are are becoming so uh passionate or the, the country so passionately swept away with debate uh and concern over slavery over the american system over these other issues over expansionism that is in danger of becoming uh, uh you know lawless and it's a it's a very potent expression of the con, a kind of a counter argument to that Jacksonian common man emphasis. Uh, it, it's really a wonderful example of that, I think. Yeah. So in light of that, I have to ask, and it's sort of, sort of <laughs> coming at the end of our time here, toward the end of our time here, um, I'm not sure which of you recommended Washington's farewell address uh, as part of the readings for, for today's session, uh, unless that was me, I can't remember. It was so long ago when we set this up, <laughs> but, but that seems to tie that piece in very nicely, Dan, to what you were just saying. And so far as the advice that Washington's giving, uh, at the end of his, uh, eight years as, as, as president, having to do with the vision of, of a union and avoiding sectional conflicts and respect for law and order. Uh, in some ways, Lincoln's Lyceum speech is a kind of, I don't want to call it a bookend, but it comes at a time when Washington and the other founders of that generation are no longer alive, and Lincoln is is in a way recalling. He's calling again for those for, for the 
for Americans to continue to fulfill the kinds of things that Washington was saying they must do in order to preserve their union. So, my, so I guess my larger question was going to be, what, is, what does Washington's farewell address have to do with Polk and the things we've been talking about today? <laughs> Other than that, unless that's it, unless I've somehow stumbled upon it. <laughs> Did you? Well, I, I, I go ahead, Eric. No, I have to say. You go ahead. I was just going to say that I, I think you have stumbled upon it. I think what, what Washington, uh, you know, I mean, I think in the farewell address, Washington emphasizes the importance of avoiding, uh, you know, some kind of uh, war outside of the, you know, state of European affairs, avoid these uh, trouble, these troublesome quarrels, uh, avoid faction and factionalism. I mean, it seems to me that what, what Washington is warning against is everything that's happening in the 1840s. You know, the, in fact, the country, as Eric said, the country embarks on its first foreign war. Uh, the country does drift into this kind of factionalism, which can be, it does drift into this kind of sectional tension. So uh, I, I think what, what precisely what Washington warned against, the country is experiencing. So it's it's interesting, I think, and relevant in that respect. And by the way, let me just say, to just uh, as a kind of um, to make the another larger point about Washington, and that is, the founders are still a very potent part of American politics. Uh, if you look at the speeches, if you look at the newspaper articles and, uh, that, of course, devoted to politics in this period, you'll see constant references to the founders and to the founders' example. And of course. Um, some of the founders were just had been above ground through much of this period. You know, of course, Jefferson and Adams die in 1826. Madison lives until 1836. So the founders were still very potent within the context of American politics. And what was considered uh, kind of appeal to founders was a regular part of lots of stump speeches. So it would be not unusual for some, you know, references to the founders are part of Lincoln's Lyceum Address. You know, Lincoln famously says, passion helped us get through the revolution, but now we need that cold calculating reason to govern our affairs because we're in another passionate age. But the passion today, passion was useful to beat the British and establish the country, but now passion is dangerous and it's leading to mob rule and it's leading to chaos. So now we need to go to cold calculating reason. Um, so the founders were, con were were very much a part of the political vernacular of the era. Fascinating. We have uh, thanks, Dan. That was that was very clear. We have come almost to the end of our time. So uh, there are a number of other questions that we didn't get to, and I apologize for that. Um, I, I wanted to know more about. <laughs> I think Eric mentioned earlier. Uh, uh, Polk had no love for Calhoun. I would love to talk more about why that was, just because. <laughs> I think I see why, but I actually want to end with um, uh, Jeff just submitted a question uh, or pointed out that that in these polls that people do of the presidents, uh, Polk is often ranked around 15 or 18 out of 44. So let me just end by asking both of you: Do you think do you think Polk deserves to be in that range, or should it be higher or lower? Or you can ignore that question and just say whatever you want in our last minute here. <laughs> Go ahead, Eric. Well, I, you know, I, I had referenced earlier uh, historian George Bancroft, and uh, you know, now granted, he was part of Polk's cabinet, so there, there's a slight lack of objectivity here. 
Um, but writing in, in more of his historical vein, he said, view from the standpoint of results, Polk's administration was perhaps the greatest in our national history, certainly one of the greatest. Um, and, you know, so he has, he has a particular lens here that he's looking at this in terms of presidential greatness. He says, you know, viewed in terms of results, if we're talking about what a president accomplished um, and, and, you know, relative to what they set out uh, to accomplish. Um, that's, that's, you know, one measure we could look at. Um, you know, 15 to 18 is a little low in my book. Um, I'd, I'd have him more, you know, 10 to 12. Uh, probably uh, is, is, is where I'd stick him overall. Um, I mean, one of the hard pieces is, is, as Dan pointed out, the fact he didn't run for a second term. Um, in, in many respects, he doesn't, he doesn't stick around to deal with a lot of the consequences of his actions. Now, in, in some respects, you know, the same thing could be said about Lincoln. You know, his assassination meant that he didn't have to stick around and deal with the consequences of a lot of his actions. And for Lincoln, at least, I think there's a consensus view that that was probably fortunate for him. Um, you know, that he might not be ranked, you know, number one in every single poll if he had had to preside over reconstruction. Um, that, that there were just no good options. There were no good pathways, you know, available to any president during that time period. Granted, you didn't have to go the Andrew Johnson route, but, um, uh, <laughs> uh, but that Lincoln might not be remembered the way he is. But, um, you know, I, I would put Polk more in that 10 to 12 range. I, I think uh, the, the number of firsts, as well as a lot of the precursors um, in his presidency to how later presidents are going to exercise the powers and prerogatives of the office, um, and then, you know, focusing on what he did actually accomplish um, as, as president, I think warrants a, a slightly higher ranking than that. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. I, I was going to say exactly the same thing. I would put him in the 10 to 12 range. I mean, I, I do think he deserves credit for all the reasons that Eric has suggested he accomplished his objectives. And he was the first modern president in many respects. I think the downside is, you know, he opened up the whole slavery uh, expansionism debate again, and the country struggles to to uh, uh, deal with that in a, a constructive way. Um, so that that certainly is is a negative. I see. Let me just say one other thing, and that is, um, one of the participants asked for good books on Polk. Uh, I mean, I love Charles Sellers. It's kind of a, these are kind of old books. But, but then I'm old. Uh, Charles uh, Charles Sellers' uh, two volumes on Polk are very good, and uh, Paul Bergeron has written a nice little nifty history of Polk's presidency. Bergeron, you can you can uh, Google these or look them up on Amazon. Um, those are very very fine studies. Dan, you mentioned a book or two earlier. Do you remember what those were? <laughs> uh, what all did I mention? I was ripping a bunch of uh, uh, well, William Cooper's book on slavery and politics is a classic. That's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, everyone should read that. I mean, that's just a wonderful book, and it shows he demonstrates conclusively how slavery poisoned uh, politics in the South, and 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 every congress. You know, I won't say every. I'm reluctant, to, like Eric, to say every or every one, but lots of congressional elections in the South started to turn over on the issue of slavery and tarring your opponent as a kind of closet abolitionist. I mean, it just poisons the well uh, everywhere. It was just such a divisive issue. Okay. And uh, I should mention, by the way, that we'll have these um, 
we'll post the video recording of, of, of this uh, of our conversation today. It should be up in a week or two, and, pe and people can go back and review this and, and, and also see the books that you mentioned earlier. And uh, Eric, you mentioned the Bancroft book earlier. Book earlier. Do you have any other suggestions? Uh, this era or, or uh, Charles, Charles McCoy? Yeah, Charles McCoy's Polk in the Presidency. Um, it's not not really a biography as much as looking at the presidential developments um, under Polk, and uh, I think does a nice job of. Of, of highlighting the, the various innovations that Polk brings uh, to to the presidency, and you know what what aspects of it are sort of distinctly modern. Okay, great, and it's a nice short read. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much. Well, well, gentlemen, I I have to say I have a newfound appreciation for Polk, and I, uh, <laughs> I've learned a great deal, and I appreciate your your thoughts and time as always on this. It's been really really fantastic and enlightening. So. Thanks again for joining us, and the best of both of you. Um, it was it was a pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, just a reminder to everybody joining us: you'll receive an email uh, soon with a with a link for a certificate of participation. Thanks again for joining us. If you've enjoyed our webinar today, please consider looking into a a, a course, an online course through our Master of Arts in American History and Government program, which you can find out more information on. TeachingAmericanHistory.org website. Our next Saturday webinar will be December 12th, uh, 11 p.m. Eastern, on Abraham Lincoln, the Great Emancipator. And we'll be joined by Lucas Morrell of Washington and Lee University and Jonathan White of Christopher Newport University. Uh, the readings are already posted online if you want to get a head start on those. Until then, best everybody. And Thank you. Dan, thanks again. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thanks. Wonderful. Enjoyed it. I came into this totally ignorant, so I am not <laughs>